All right, what a rich morning we've had thus far. We're going to be in Exodus 20. We've heard uh, a beautiful testimony celebrating God's grace and this family's life. We've heard beautiful singing. We've prayed a dear prayer, uh, and we get to hear God's word now uh, over our lives. So turn to Exodus 20. You'll have to be quick. We're only going to read four words today uh, in verse 13. So practice your sword drill and get there quick. Uh, while you're turning, I just want to update you on the offering we took last week. We took our first ever Go Forward offering that we're planning to do every summer. And by God's grace, through your generosity, we were able to uh, raise just under $7,000 last week, uh, which is just amazing. And so, amen, amen. So church, thank you for the way you give. Uh, it's an extraordinary evidence that the gospel has changed your life. And I know that those across the globe, and especially the Del Castillos and Santa Cruz, Bolivia, will just feel your love and partnership as they benefit from the gift that we send. All right, Exodus 20, four words. You ready? Verse 13. You shall not murder. Lord, we pray that these brief words would be filled with the power of your spirit and that the manifold applications would come home in our world and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In March of every year, our pastoral team takes a retreat to plan, to learn, and to increase our unity as a team. At least that's the intent of the trip. Uh, one featured event that we do every year is a hockey game in the gymnasium where we run around with impossibly small sticks that are too small for even kindergartners to use. And so this year we tried to split up the teams evenly, but as the game started, it was very clear that a slaughter was on our hands. As my team became down five goals in less than a minute, I panicked and replaced the goalie and thought, now they'll never score. They proceeded to score several more times, despite my arrogance. What was left for me to do? Play goalie and offense. I began running out of the goal, trying to score, and then sprinting back to the goal to cover when the other team got the puck. And all the while, the score differential kept increasing, and my anger began to rise. I began running faster, checking harder, desperately flinging my body wherever I could. And that is until I encountered an immovable obstacle. I can play it back in my mind right now because it was a near-death experience. <laughs> I lost the puck and began sprinting backwards towards my goal when I turned my head and my heart plummeted. All of a sudden, I saw Jared Torrance, who led worship this morning for us today, with an evil grin on his face. What happened next can only be described in Looney Tunes fashion. I was somehow flattened into two dimensions and yet also catapulted in the opposite direction without losing any speed. And as I crashed to the ground, something in me snapped. I stood up with my fists balled and I was just about to literally punch JT. <laughs> when I realized that I would in fact be ending my life <laughs> if I did that. 
So what did I do? I threw down my stick, stamped off to the corner while all the pastors politely tried to ignore my behavior. <laughs> Anger was awakened in me, but I don't think I'm alone. Anger is looming inside all of us. Old habits die hard. Pull up at a church softball event and you might just see a few full-grown men with toddler behavior. I'm not naming any names, but you know who you are. Pull up to my five-way intersection near my house in Aston, and you slow down a little too long, and you'll hear a few choice words and a horn. And those are humorous examples, but we also know the destructive power of anger. Just a few weeks ago in Springfield, a road rage incident ended in someone being shot. Friends, God's word today forbids us from the unlawful taking of human life. But the same mentality involved in murder is also present when we hate someone. So far from this being an easy command to keep, we're going to find that the broader ethic that this calls us to is one of the most beautiful and the most difficult commands to follow. Here's what it calls us to do in one sentence. Those saved from sin's bondage must cherish human life. Those saved from sin's bondage must cherish human life. And when we're angry and fail to love, we're failing to cherish human life the way this command requires. It applies to all humans, and it's meant to restrain sin in our society, protect life in our society, but it especially applies to Christians. Remember that the words of the Ten Commandments were given to the Israelites who had just been delivered from bondage in Egypt. These were not commandments on how to get free, but how to live now that they had been set free. And for us, Christ has come, died in our place, ransomed us from sin, and set us free to live a life worthy of him. So how then are we to orient towards human life? That's what this command answers. So let's unpack this cherishing of life in three ways this morning. First, let's look at how we must cherish human life by refusing to take it unlawfully. That's our first point this morning. Refuse to take human life unlawfully. Now, I said earlier that there are four words in this text. Actually, if you're reading the Hebrew, there's just two. A verb and a negation. Literally, don't murder or ah murder. But even though there's just one word, the implications of this are incredible. The verb here often uses, is, is used to specify killing with murderous intentions. So whether in vengeance against someone doing something terrible to you, or perhaps in loyalty to your family, murder is completely forbidden. Now, let me address folks here today or maybe watching online who you wouldn't identify as someone who follows Christ or as a Christian. Deep down inside, you know that murder is wrong, and you long for a society that no longer allows murder but cherishes life. Friend, that's what God wanted long before you or I were born. There's no one that deeply cherishes life more than God. 
He is deeply grieved when murder takes place. So the longing that you have is actually God's desire for the world. So even as we continue to learn from this command, I want to encourage you to lean in. God's will is beautiful. And if followed, it leads to a world beyond even our best desires. Now, brothers and sisters, this command may seem obvious to us. Don't murder. Perhaps even easy for some of us. But that's because of the context we live. Blessedly, there's limited Christian persecution here. But imagine if you couldn't hold a job because you're a Christian. Or if your children were unsafe every time they left the house. Violence and vengeance would be a constant temptation. But still, even in that case, murder is forbidden. Now this also applies to suicide. I know this is a sensitive topic. Some of us have lost ones dear to us. And we can't say all that we want to this morning on this topic. But dear brothers and sisters, our road is often dark and we don't, we can't see the way out of our valleys. But suicide must never be an option. Dear friend, you are made in God's image, his crown of creation. You are loved by God. You, even you at your darkest moments, with your worst thoughts, God loves you there. Friends, we cherish life first and foremost by refusing to end our own. If you've been having suicidal thoughts, please tell someone today. I'd love personally to talk to you, and this is a community that longs to help you. Now, the word that we are talking about here in this commandment is actually broader than just murder. Take a look at if you have your ESV open. You'll see for the word murder, there's a, a footnote in your Bible. It says that this word can also refer to causing human death through carelessness or negligence. So what we find here is that this command forbids more than the willful taking of human life. Now, it does not prohibit self-defense, nor does it mean that war is always wrong, nor does this refer to killing animals. And we know from Genesis 9 that legal execution is not in view here either because God said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So what is forbidden is the careless or malevolent taking of human life, whether by actively killing or failing to actively protect human life. Now, on the latter side, there's, there's an incredible illustration of the way we're supposed to cherish human life in the Old Testament. They set up these cities called cities of refuge, where when somebody killed someone, they were to flee into these cities to find rescue. And in that city, there would be judges elected to determine whether they had murdered or it was an accident. If it was determined the person had murdered someone, they would be put to death. But if it was an accident, that person actually had to live in that city of refuge until the high priest of that time died. 
And that could be a really long time. For an accident? Why? Because human life is precious, and we are called to cherish it by refusing to murderously take it or be careless with it. We are called to cherish human life. Second, by defending the weak. The sixth commandment is kind of like a a Mustryoshka doll, one of those Russian nesting dolls. You ever seen those where you keep unpacking the implications? Well, this, this, this uh, command, you just unpack it and unpack it, and it keeps on having more and more implications for us. And it's here that the historic confessions of the faith are so helpful in taking our hand and sort of showing us all that's packed up inside the command. Here's what the Westminster Larger Catechism says about this command. It says, the duties required by the sixth command are to preserve the life of ourselves and others by just defense thereof against violence, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. The duties forbidden in the sixth commandment are the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful necessary means of preservation of life. Those sections that I've pulled out are excerpts from the larger section, but they're in these words we see emphasized that we're not only personally to refuse to take human life, but we're actively called to defend those who are most often in danger, the weak, the marginalized, and the needy. As Proverbs 24 says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Friends, God requires us to be proactive about defending the weak. This means caring about violence in neighborhoods nearby. This means advocating for the rights of the unborn child. We should praise God that Roe v. Wade was overturned, amen? That states are now empowered to raise the protections of life in the womb. And I thank God for the way that Wendy Stagora and Rachel Hayes lead us forward in our pro-life ministry. Uh, They do such a great job. And if you want to know more about ways that you can be engaged in actively defending the weak in the womb, you can talk to them, and they have great ways for you to get involved. Defending the weak also means supporting and helping with mental health and suicide prevention efforts. And I'm so grateful for the way members like John Musum work in the mental health field. This also means defending the rights of the elderly who are in danger of the threat of euthanasia. Friends, though it's not the only variable, one factor as we vote must be the protection and preservation of the weak. But an active defense of the weak also personally engages. This can look like adopting, mentoring, or maybe allowing a young mom or your parents to live with you. We cherish life by defending the weak and refusing to take life unlawfully. And brothers and sisters, 
this cherishing of human life ought to go all the way down to the level of our hearts. That's our third point. Peace, pursue peace over hatred. So we cherish life by not taking it unlawfully, by defending the weak, and by pursuing peace over hatred. We see this call to peace in Jesus' application of the sixth commandment. Here's what he says. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry and his brother, with his brother, will be liable to judgment. Here Jesus plainly tells us that the murder that's so easy to castigate out there is actually something we are doing every time we're sinfully angry. Now, before we unpack that more, we must clarify that Jesus is not saying that anger is always sinful. Jesus was angry at different times in his life, in the temple, and when Lazarus died. And Paul commands us in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So clearly the presence of anger is not always an indicator of sin. But how do these two commands work together? Well, David Pallison's like one of the OG counselor guys, and once again, he's helpful. He says this about anger. He says, every time you get angry or don't get angry, you broadcast what matters to you. Every time you get angry or don't get angry, you broadcast what matters to you. When you get worked up, you're saying, hey, that, that's worth caring about. And when you don't get worked up, you're saying, well, it's not that big of a deal. When we value the right things, we will be righteously angry. When we cherish the glory of God, we will be angry when he's blasphemed. When we cherish human life, we will be angry at murder and social injustice. There are things that we should rightly be angry about. So there is a good anger that acts in godly ways. It wants to do something when wrong is done and it moves in justice and mercy to seek reconciliation and restitution. That's a complex topic that I can't unpack completely here this morning. But notice even in the, the command we referenced a second ago where Paul says, be angry, he very quickly tells us that we need to work toward resolution ASAP. Because if we allow even righteous anger to linger in us, it will not be long before it turns into sinful anger. So when we are righteously angry, we should act quickly in ways that spread justice, mercy, and peace. But guys, if we're honest, most often our anger is not so righteous. We're often just like, like a toddler raging over something that we want, aren't we? I recently saw a video of a, a boy at his birthday, and his candles are all aflame, and he's just about to blow it out, and his brother's seated right next to him, and his dad's right behind. And as the boy's about to blow out, you see this boy next door just sort of eyeing those candles and like, I'm going to take this moment. And you see him, and his father catches his eye, and he's like, you know, and he has this, this, uh, this uh, plate in his hand, 
And he skillfully, just as the boy decides to blow, sticks the plate right in front of the kid's face every single time he blows, like with the greatest dad skills of the century. I was like, that is awesome. Teach me your ways. But you know what? Finally, the kid blows out his own candles. And you know what the reaction of this kid was? He was like stomping and slamming the table and screaming at his dad in complete anger. It was hilarious. Mostly because it reminded me of me. You see, this is the kind of anger that's often in us. Sometimes we make it a little more adult looking on the outside, but on the inside, that's what's happening. And that's the anger that Jesus addresses, our most common feelings of anger. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then he tells us after that that whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Jesus here calls us to resist the current of sinful anger and to row with strokes of peace. Friends, anger is a big deal. It starts out small, but it will destroy your life if not battled against. Jesus is calling you to more than just refusing to be a murderer of the hand. He's calling you to be a peacemaker from the heart. Jesus' brother James also has something to tell us about anger. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James helps us see that at bottom, our conflicts with another are about desire. We fight and quarrel because we don't have something that we want. Respect, recognition, just some plain old peace and quiet. We all have our own idols, don't we? We don't get these things, and we're ready to throw hands. But James actually says, we desire and do not have so we murder. Seems a little excessive, right? It's like, are they murdering each other in the diaspora he's writing to? Well, what he's telling us here is there's a connection, a close connection, between when you choose to really let that person have it because you're not getting what you want and the person that lifts the knife out of anger. When you rage against each other, you are failing to cherish one another as we're called to. Friend, we're called to cherish human life, not just to keep a pulse going, but to radically care about how we might harm someone with our speech, with our post, with our tone, with our silence. Like Cain, we see that our brother's offering is more pleasing than ours. We fail to cherish his life, and we act in anger. Friends, the energy with which we fight by God's grace for the rights of the weak should harmonize with a zealous fight against the murderous intentions of anger in our hearts. 
A longing for our own desires is what often leads us to an angry failure to cherish human life. Parents, you must love your children by faithfully shepherding them, not lashing out, terrifying them, or imposing a reign of terror in your home. Husbands, you must prize your wives, sacrificially serving them in leadership. Brothers, you must not use your strength to dominate, not use your God-given authority to crush your spouse's ingenuity, creativity, gifting, and desires. She must feel that you cherish her life. Friends, you must love your friends, lending a listening ear, a helping hand, rejoicing and weeping with them, not ghosting them, gossiping about them, envying them, or leveraging your personal knowledge to throw well-aimed darts of anger. Your friends should know that you cherish their life. Oh, brothers and sisters, who are the people in your life that most tempt you to anger? You know who they are. Jesus tells you this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You must cherish all human life, not just your family, tribe, church circle, neighborhood, or political party. Not just our nation, brothers and sisters. We are even called to love our enemies, to pray for those who would try to kill us. Jesus calls us to cherish life by spreading peace and love wherever we go, even when we're taken within a prison camp for his glory. What a high standard. I'd like to invite the band to come back as we turn to close. Reference David Pallison earlier. He wrote a really helpful book on anger called Good and Angry. And the second chapter is entitled, Do I Have an Anger Problem? Well, the chapter's only one word. Yes. It's hilarious. I don't know how that got past the publishers, but I'm so grateful. <laughs> Friends, half of the list of the typical sins in Galatians 5 involve anger. All of us have an anger problem. All of us are in desperate need of grace. But our anger doesn't always look the same. It doesn't always look like screaming or hitting or cussing. Anger can be irritability. Just getting easily angered by small things. Argumentativeness, always looking to counter rather than listen. It can even look like passivity. A lethargy or pessimism can stem from anger. It can look like self-righteousness. It can feel oh so good to call out grievances and ignore our own problems. Quiet brooding, blunt cutting words, a raised voice, defensive withdrawal, judgy thoughts, a critical attitude, conflict avoidance, indifference to things that could be mended. These are all potential anger problems. 
And I hope, like me, you see your tendencies in at least a few of these. I see my tendencies in, like, all of them. For me, particularly, it's the silent treatment. I withdraw. I go cold. I avoid conflict. But inside, I'm boiling. We all have an anger problem. So, friends, have you owned your anger problem and run to your Savior? Friends, is your anger problem unchecked? Have you taken it to Jesus lately? We hear, you shall not murder, and we think immediately, yeah, stop doing that. That's terrible. But as Afshin Ziafa writes, for all that our hatred of the murder out there, we can fail to hate the murder in here. But Scripture, in the words of Jesus in particular, will not allow us to hate murder at a safe distance. The sixth command, you shall not murder, exposes a universal problem and a universal need for forgiveness. But there's good news. Amen? There is good news for angry sinners today. Though your anger is like scarlet, you can be washed like a freshly fallen snow. Friends, Jesus lived perfectly. He was perfectly angry. He justly cared about everything that he should and never turned a blind eye to those in need. And then he endured incredible mistreatment and refused to lash out in disproportionate anger. He was hunted by the local government as a child. Imagine the trauma and the struggle of growing up after that. He was hunted. He was threatened. He was in danger from angry mobs. He was betrayed by his closest, one of his closest friends, abandoned by most of his followers. He was slapped, spat upon, mocked, and falsely judged. And he was forced to bear his own cross, our cross. And then he was hung as a cursed man upon it so that all the world could call him a murderous, angry criminal. He had every right to be angry in return. And yet, he endured. In long suffering, he endured the hatred. He had the right to bring vengeance. But he had the right to act in just anger. But friends, he acted in mercy. Friends, every time you are sinfully angry, he has the right to punish you. Every time you lash out at your wife or your husband... You give them the cold shoulder or you say a biting word. Every one of those times we should receive just anger. But Jesus endured all the way to the cross so that he could bring us out of our bondage to sin. And on that cross he chose to be seen as the murderer of hand and the murderer of heart. He chose to stand in the place of sinners and he offers to die in your place if you will trust in his name and continue trusting in his name, battling the sin of anger in others for the rest of your life by his grace. All who will cease living for their passions and desires and fall on their knees before Jesus, choosing him instead will encounter not wrath, but mercy. And grace, because he loves us despite our anger. On that cross, Jesus took the full wrath of God for every sinner that repents. An eternity of righteous anger. An eternity of righteous anger. That's what he took on the cross for you and me.
but he will come again. Full of righteous anger to judge the living and the dead. Do you know him as your savior? Have you run to him for mercy? Cry to him for mercy. Run to him. He will give it. He died to give it. He longs to give it to you afresh today. And he died to save us, friends, not just to deliver us from bondage, but to bring us into his peace. He rose from the grave and he appeared to many of those who had abandoned him. And do you know what he said? He didn't say vengeance. He said, peace be with you. He gave them peace and not vengeance. He appeared to Paul, who had killed his followers and persecuted him and murdered his people. And he changed him to be a proclaimer of peace. Jesus took the wrath that we deserve to bring us into his peace. And he sent the spirit all the way down into our hearts to bring us into a kingdom of peace. And brothers and sisters, we hail him as the prince of peace. Church, hail him as the prince of peace. Hail him by speaking peace into your worst conflicts. Hail him by defending the weak when no one else will speak up. Hail him by refusing to be careless with your life and with others' lives. Hail him by living in the good of the reign that Christ won on the cross. Oh, believer, bought by the blood of Jesus, you must choose peace. He has made you a peacemaker. We are saved from bondage to sin, and we have been delivered from the tyranny of our desires, and we have been set free to cherish life, to protect the weak, to be peacemakers in our homes, peacemakers in our church, peacemakers in our workplace, peacemakers online, peacemakers with those that hate us. So church, hear these words anew these New Testament commands to put away anger and know that the Spirit of God, even now, is empowering you to live in the reign of Christ's peace. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But now... You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. May we live in the blessing of the peace that Christ made possible he has said, you shall not murder. And he ever lives to help you choose peace and pour blessing on you every time you obey. He says, in closing, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen.